0: This episode, recorded during the virtual meeting, gender responsiveness and disaster resilience during the COVID-19 crisis, features presentations that explore how to incorporate a gender perspective in prevention, response, and recovery measures to build national resilience and ensure that the differentiated needs of the population are met. Insights are shared by Angie Daze from the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Kiana Bowen from the UN Women Multi-Country Office for the Caribbean, Elizabeth Riley from the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency, and Matsimiliano Tosi from the United Nations Development Program and Gender Project. The session is moderated by Dr. Gail Riggerbert, Minister for Education, Innovation, Gender Relations, and Sustainable Development of St. Lucia.
1: Therefore, with your kind permission, would like to open the panel discussion by inviting our first speaker, Angie Daze, Associate Resilience and Climate Change Adaptation with IISD to present. Ms. Daze, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you very much, Minister, and good morning to all. My name is Angie Daze, and I am an associate at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, IISD. IISD is an independent think tank focused on sustainable development, which is headquartered in Winnipeg, Canada. Resilience is one of IISD's five program areas. We also host the secretariat of the National Adaptation Plan Global Network, which aims to advance adaptation action in developing countries. Gender has been a priority theme for us for the last few years, which has provided us with some important insights into the linkages between gender equality, climate change adaptation and disaster resilience, both at the policy level and at the practical level. Today, I've been asked to provide a bit of context on how these three issues come together. The starting point is to understand that people experience the impacts of climate change and disasters in different ways depending on where they live, how they sustain their livelihoods, and the roles they play in their families and communities. For example, a fisherman in a coastal village has a much different experience with a hurricane than a civil servant working in the capital. A commercial farmer is affected differently by sea level rise than a smallholder growing food crops for their family. A health worker is affected differently by COVID-19 than someone working in tourism. There are also socially determined differences. Gender interacts with other factors, including age, disability, ethnicity, and sexual orientation, to determine opportunities, access to services, and decision making power. All of these factors influence how people are affected by climate change and disasters, as well as their ability to respond. And this makes some people much more vulnerable than others to the same risks. This means, for example, that a woman in a poor rural household is differently affected by a recurrent drought than her husband. It also means that a man with a disability has a different experience than his able-bodied neighbors when a flood occurs. These differences matter when it comes to building resilience. And if they're not addressed and understood in efforts to manage climate and disaster risks, there is a risk that the people with the greatest need for resilience building will be left behind. So how do we ensure that investments in climate change adaptation and disaster risk management are targeted where they're needed most? What we need is a gender responsive approach. Through our work with national adaptation plan processes, we've defined three key elements of what this looks like. The first is recognizing gender differences in needs and capacities for managing climate and disaster risks. So this is about identifying strategies that address the specific needs of people of different genders and social groups. The second element is about ensuring gender equitable participation and influence in planning and decision-making processes. Many of the people who are most vulnerable to climate and disaster risks are excluded or lack the power to influence actions taken in their community or country. Effective resilience building brings everyone to the table, recognizing the value of their knowledge and their potential as agents of change. Finally, the third element aims to ensure that investments in resilience don't inadvertently reinforce or exacerbate existing wealth and power structures. We need to ensure that these investments are equitable, providing opportunities and benefits for all people, particularly those who are currently marginalized. IISD has undertaken a range of activities on gender and climate change adaptation in the region. So I'll just highlight a couple here. In late 2018, we collaborated with UN Women and the Ministry of Economic Growth and Job Creation in Jamaica to organize a workshop that brought together gender and climate change focal points in key ministries from Jamaica, Antigua and Barbuda, and St. Lucia. This was an opportunity for these focal points to learn together and identify ways to address climate change and gender equality in an integrated approach. The government of Jamaica then translated that learning into a successful proposal to the Green Climate Fund for a specific project aimed at developing institutional capacities on gender and climate change. Over the course of 2019, we collaborated with the Adaptation Committee and the Least Developed Countries Expert Group, two of the constituted bodies under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to develop a practical toolkit to guide countries in taking a gender responsive approach to their national adaptation plan processes. This draws on our experience working with different partner governments around the world and presents a flexible approach that allows countries to start wherever they are in their adaptation planning process to actively integrate gender considerations. Finally, I want to mention an exciting initiative that we are just starting in partnership with UN Women. Uh, We'll be undertaking a knowledge, attitudes, behaviors, and practices analysis of the climate change and disaster risk management coordinating bodies in nine countries in the Caribbean to explore individual and institutional biases related to gender. This analysis will inform recommendations to support more gender-responsive resilience building as part of the Engender project, which you'll hear more about later. I will stop there, but I would like to sincerely thank America's UN Women and the Government of St. Lucia for this opportunity to be a part of the session, and I look forward to the discussions to come.
1: And it's my pleasure to call upon Kiana Bowen who is the Programme Officer, Humanitarian Climate Change and Disaster Risk Resilience, UN Women, MCO4, the Caribbean. Over
3: to you, Kayana. This morning, my aim is to basically highlight issues surrounding gender inequality during disaster situations in the Caribbean and how we as a region within our respective nations can transform preparedness, response, and recovery to become more gender responsive. Next slide, please. According to the World Bank, the Caribbean's population and assets are amongst the most exposed to natural hazard impacts, which are also being exacerbated by climate change. In addition to countries still recovering from hurricane impacts in 2017, both our tourism and agriculture sectors, which on average accounts for at least 75% of our GDP across the region, are not only highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, but also to other hazard impacts that we are seeing with the novel coronavirus. Since March this year, we can all attest that our governments have been managing the impact of COVID-19 effectively through well-thought-out plans, physical distancing measures, and even stakeholder consultations in some instances. However, disaster risk resilience cannot remain business as usual. Barbadian Prime Minister, the Honourable Mia Motley, while speaking at a UN Women Rise for All event last week on July 14th, she stated that all issues are women's issues. Therefore, it is important to keep in mind that women are disproportionately affected and have uneven levels of disaster resilience. Gender transformative disaster risk resilience must now also consider our everyday risks in terms of the needs of men, women, boys, and girls. Decision-making must now be informed by sex-disaggregated data in terms of gender-based violence, as well as access to services, to name a few. Generally, In the Caribbean, we tend to see three main forms of gender inequality trending. There's a perception of women being weaker than men. Women tend to be caregivers and may not be able to resume work immediately after hazard impact, as well as we may be seeing less women in decision-making positions. In June, we surveyed approximately 60 technical specialists from nine Caribbean countries under a training component of the Engender project. The Engender project is being funded by Global Affairs Canada and UK DFID, and my colleague of the UNDP will share more on Engender soon. But interestingly, the majority of persons highlighted that competing priorities were their main cause for not being able to adopt a gender responsive approach. As my colleague Angie mentioned before, As part of Engender, UN Women, we plan to focus on our study on the knowledge, attitudes, perceptions, and behaviors to determine how best we can overcome these gender inequalities. However, despite this sector, we must keep in mind that gender transformative disaster risk resilience, as Speaker Andy Daniel just mentioned, does not only require parliamentarians and decision makers to vie for votes, but more it's centered around engendering disaster resilience policy decisions, which in fact also requires gender responsive budgeting across all sectors. Because once it's not budgeted, it does not get done. So first of all, allow me to explain the importance of sex disaggregated data. Everything we do can be attributed to data. Therefore, we must, as best as possible, ensure that that data is sex disaggregated. It must be analyzed properly because sometimes you may look at data initially and it might say one thing to you, but when you do a proper analysis, you recognize after that the data is telling you something else. Therefore, sex disaggregated data can inform the conversations that we need to be having across the sectors So that all levels of society and the needs of men, women, boys and girls are taken into consideration when planning for disasters. Women in leadership is also very critical. Not only does quality matter but quantity as well. We need to have critical persons at the table so we are thinking about everybody. We at the multi-country office we are happy to see that the national gender machineries across the region are on board and very much part of national plan development, not only because they're run by women, but because they're also run by men who understand what is required for a gender responsive agenda. Let us also take a critical look at prevention of violence and protection. This is important because statistics on gender-based violence are important as more women are vulnerable to intimate and sexual violence than men are. This is something that you have to be thinking about after the aftermath of any hazard impact. In some cases, due to these stay-at-home restrictions brought by COVID-19, we have seen some communities where there have been a rise in violence against women and children. Therefore, that is important. When we are planning and executing relief distribution, we must ensure that we are calculated and that we are not exploiting any existing gender inequalities or societal inequalities. For example, the distribution of dignity kits will be a priority in communities where there are a high number of women and girls post-disaster impact. We must also consider health and reproductive health because there are specific vulnerabilities that are specific to women, for example, pregnant women. As it relates to nutrition and household food security, This is critical for addressing gender inequalities because our decision makers at the table are those persons who are ultimately responsible for food security in our country. While many of us can agree that we have fantastic data in the Caribbean as having the largest proportion of women managers in the world, when we look at women in our societies, there are some instances where most women are in the lower income strata. At this point, I would also encourage you to peruse our website, which can be found at caribbean.unwoman.org, as you can find more details on that type of data available. So when when we are looking at skills training, we are really asking questions as to how we are ensuring that both men and women are in positions that could promote disaster resilience, how many men and women are in first responder roles, and how many women and men work in sectors that are highly vulnerable to shocks. For example, if the majority of women are working in the tourism sector and they are forced to be let off after hazard impact, what does this mean for their ability to generate income and the need of the state to look at retraining on skills training? These are the things we have to be thinking about. Next slide, please. This table allows us to see that five out of eight selected countries within the Caribbean region that women cases of COVID-19 have superseded men cases. This type of data can inform policy decisions, because be, inform policy decisions, because now we can ask the question of whether it is a case of women are more exposed within the COVID-19 environment, or is it a case where their immune systems are weaker than men's? At this point I want to emphasize the need of becoming gender transformative not only in adapting to our new normal within the COVID-19 environment but also in respect to our hurricane preparedness efforts as we have now seen Tropical Storm Gonzalo formed in the Atlantic. In our communities we must ensure that our domestic violence shelters for example are not only physically strong to withstand strong winds, high winds, and heavy rains, but also they have the capacity to provide personal protective equipment for their shelteries in the form of cloth masks, for example. Next slide, please. Allow me to take the opportunity to share with you just a few number of the activities that the multi-country office has done in the fight against COVID thus far. In an attempt to promote economic empowerment, We have engaged both women and men to produce a total of 6,500 cloth masks in 13 Caribbean countries. In addition to that, we have also empowered four women farmer associations in Dominica where an online platform was created called AgriBetize to allow those farmers to sell their produce via online orders, via WhatsApp, and even Facebook, for example. A number of policy briefs were also developed, and I believe my colleague, sharon carterberg she shared the link within the chat were developed to provide technical support to our countries in the areas of the care economy and even shelter guidelines one of our next activities will also entail a gender impact assessment where we aim to collect sex disaggregated data to determine the impact of livelihoods as a result of the covid 19 impact ladies and gentlemen i thank you It is my
1: pleasure to introduce Elizabeth Riley, the Acting Executive Director of CDEMA. So this
4: morning, in about 10 to 15 minutes or so, I want to share some observations with you related to hazards, the hurricane season, and COVID-19, and to raise, I think, some broad issues related to the interactions between these three items but also to point to some specific matters which are gender related. So in the presentation I will just say a little bit about sadima to introduce you to the organization to talk a little bit about the hazards landscape The frameworks within which we operate and which guide our work on disaster risk management and how gender interfaces with respect to these strategic documents. And then I want to zero in specifically on COVID-19 and the hurricane season 2020. As you have probably heard, we just had Tropical Storm Gonzalo forming this morning. That was announced just about 10 minutes to 9 or so this morning. And finally, a few thoughts on the way forward. So the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency, SEDEMA, as you may know, it's an agency of the Caribbean community. We have a broad geographical remit, as is shown by the yellow shadings on the map on the right-hand side of the screen. So what is important about this map is diversity and what you would recognize is that we have continental states, we have single island states and multi-island territories as well and each of them brings its their own level of complexity in terms of the hazards that are faced, the hazards that are prioritized and therefore actions that are required with treating each of those hazards. We have a a fairly broad remit as for the agreement established in Sedima. So, we support countries in mobilizing and coordinating disaster relief. We lobby and advocate for the mitigation or reduction in the consequences of disasters. We have an important function as an information clearinghouse where we provide information on hazards and hazard impacts um, in the case of emergency events. And in non emergency times, we have a repository of information on broad disaster risk issues via the SEDIMA website. We also work with a diversity of partners in encouraging disaster loss reduction and we partner through MOUs for cooperative arrangements and mechanisms. And of course, we support our states in maintaining their own critical levels of disaster risk capabilities, principally through training at our regional training center. So we mentioned the diverse hazards and you get a snapshot here on screen. And in quick summary, The hazards fall into different categories so you can have your hydrometeorological which are related to drought, severe weather, cyclonic activity including tropical storms and hurricanes as well as floods or you can also have your seismic related hazards which are earthquake volcano related and there's also hazards on the technological side as you can see at the bottom of the screen where we have oil spills for example. And of course, when we're discussing COVID-19, that is a health-related hazard, and I'll come back to that a little bit further in the presentation. So, in addition to the hydrometeorological events that we face in the region currently, we're also experiencing global climate change, and you're probably well familiar with some of the implications. The... Quick synopsis of this slide is that climate change is already happening. That has been confirmed by our climate scientists. And therefore, the types of extremes that we're seeing with hydrometeorological hazards, both on the side of water deficits, as in drought, and water excess, as in floods, are expected to become more intense over time. We are also well aware of the economic impacts of the systems. our region and this I also wanted to mention very quickly some of the trends that we're observing from the disaster management lens one is that many of the systems that we're seeing now are record-breaking we saw this with respect to Irma in 2017 and also Dorian in 2019 and we're seeing some unusual um, situations with some of these systems in terms of the speed of intensification also important is the role of the antecedent conditions, and by this I mean if, for example, we have extreme rainfall events um, which are immediately preceded by drought, we tend to see exacerbation of certain hazards such as the landslides, and we saw that in Tropical Storm Erica in Dominica in 2015. I have a question mark against the models because I think one of the interesting conversations that's ongoing right now is how are the, map, the models really picking up the changes that we're seeing as a result of the changing climate? And that is something that we have to discuss. So, on to the strategic guidance documents for the region. And I want to mention two of them principally, and just to point out where gender is treated in these strategies. So, since 2001, SEDIMA has been working under the umbrella of what we call our Comprehensive Disaster Management Strategy, or CDM we are in the third iteration of that strategy which spans 2014 to 2024. And the strategy stands upon four key result areas which contribute to an overarching um, vision of strengthening resilience in the region. So those four result areas are related to strengthening of institutions, looking at the whole issue of knowledge management and how we are gathering a better evidence base to inform our decision making. It speaks also to sector integration because resilience building at the national level is firmly built upon resilience at the sector level and also with respect to result for resilience at the community level as well. So we emphasize these things. And of course, with respect to community level interactions, we put a deeper lens on gender-related issues because we look at how we're implementing, designing and implementing programs at the community level and how we increase effectiveness through consideration of gender-related issues. You will note along the base of the diagram that we have in some writing in black along the bottom there, and those represent the cross-cutting issues that are integrated into the regional strategy and you will notice that gender is one of those areas that has been specifically highlighted along with climate change icts and environmental sustainability now in 2017 in the aftermath of hurricanes irma and maria the heads of government of Caricom asked sedima the question what does resilience really mean in the context of our Caricom states And so we undertook a consultative process with a diverse range of stakeholders, including, of course, our um, partner institutions at the regional and national, national level and international. And of course, with our participating states, and we came up with a model as to what this framework of resilience looks like within the Caribbean context. And as you can see, it's built upon five key pillars, social protection for the marginal and the most vulnerable, and within this context, it gives due consideration to issues related to vulnerable groups, but also issues related to gender and how gender impacts upon issues of social protection, enhancing economic opportunities. And of course, we know that there are gender-related considerations there. I listened to Kiana's presentation a few minutes ago, which touched on some of these economic-related issues and the profile related to gender in the region at the time. It also speaks to safeguarding of infrastructure, which is quite self explanatory, and environmental protection, as well as operational readiness and recovery. And you will notice that there are the small blue boxes circling the pillars, and one of them at about 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock or so on your diagram, speaks to gender inclusiveness. So the critical message here is that the issue of gender is firmly embedded as a an element that needs to be given an appropriate and comprehensive treatment as we discuss resilience within the Caribbean context. So let's turn our attention now to what has been happening with COVID-19. And as the COVID-19 pandemic um, expanded, I would say across the globe in the first few months of 2020, the context within the Caribbean is quite instructive. Because of course we had a varied level of planning for pandemic. Some countries had in place um, national influenza plans, which were um, easily adapted to the pandemic um, pandemic uh, realities. But the fact is that the levels of planning were not where we really wanted them to be. If we are honest with ourselves, we also note that with respect to the COVID-19, this is a hazard that is public health led, which is a bit different from the discussions with the hydrometeorological and seismic hazards. And what this meant is that the information that fuels the decision making in a pandemic context, it is driven by information that comes from the health sector. So it sits upon a premise that you need to have a certain level of robustness within your health sector to be able to manage a pandemic because there are these expectations in terms of what the health sector would be able to deliver and make available to inform the decision-making processes i also heard in kiana's presentation that she raised the key point of the all of government and society um, components as we're looking at gender issues and similarly In treating with the COVID-19 pandemic, this is an absolute requirement. And in fact, it is important for gender bureaus to be at the table in the national level conversation in the all of government and all of society response to COVID-19. Also, we recognize that with COVID-19, we're still learning. In fact, up to last week, there was an active conversation globally about whether COVID-19 is airborne. And I don't think they've fully answered the question, but certainly I've seen actions being taken in the direction that we should treat with as if there is an airborne component. So we are learning about COVID-19. We're also learning about differential impacts of COVID-19 on males versus females. We're seeing some of the statistics coming out from across the globe indicating that there's a suggestion that there's a greater susceptibility with respect to males as compared to females. I think one of the areas that we do have to look at is related to, and this is certainly for going forward and how we're looking at the issue here in the Caribbean is how can we have a better sex disaggregation of the statistics related to COVID-19 because it's only through that type of analysis that we'll really be able to get a better handle on what's happening with this disease. We also know that we have a complex multi-hazard environment. Um, Right now, we have an ongoing drought, which has been happening since 2019. The hurricane season is here. We just spoke about Gonzalo. And of course, COVID-19 brings a level of complexity, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. I think one of the very important features of the COVID-19 within the Caribbean context has been the posture of regional solidarity, which has been led very ably by another one of our outstanding females in the region, the Honorable Mia Amor-Motley, who of course was the chairperson of CARICOM for the first six months of 2020. And I think that has been very instructive in terms of how the region has responded and responded with a posture of regional solidarity in terms of how we're treating with the COVID issue. And I, I really want to emphasize this point because the way that the region is going to be able to cope, has coped with and continues to cope with COVID-19 is based upon our collective strength. And I think that has been one of the absolute positives that has been demonstrated. And certainly the spirit of the revised Treaty of shagaramas to me, has really come to the fore in how we have responded um, to the COVID-19 over the past six months. I also want to touch on this whole issue of the economic impact and livelihood implications, and perhaps this was treated more comprehensively before I joined the meeting um, of COVID-19. And uh, of course, you know, there has been significant disruption in terms of the economic landscape of the Caribbean, largely because of our heavy dependence on uh, the tourism sector And we know, for example, that the percentage contribution of GDP to GDP by the tourism sector varies across the CARICOM states. In Bahamas, for example, direct contributions to GDP is around 19%. Whereas if you look at the total contribution to GDP, it can go as high as 48%. And then there are various uh, percentages along the spectrum as you look at the various states. And also very importantly is... This livelihood implication, because when we drill down from that macro level, one of the things that we're seeing, of course, is the increase in the percentage of persons who are now out of work. And I heard the Honorable Mir Motley um, raise a statistic a few um, few days ago, or last week I think it was, related to the workforce in Barbados. And she indicated that at this time, approximately one third of the workforce in Barbados is unemployed. Now, I think what is also going to be, I think, a a, a natural sort of understanding from those type of statistics is that what we're going to see is that there has been a change in that profile of the persons within our society where you have a higher percentage of persons now falling into that vulnerable or marginal category. And I think it will be instructive for us to have some significant analysis of the Um, data, particularly sex disaggregation of the data in terms of how we may see if there are differences in terms of how males versus females have been impacted by the unemployment and also underemployment, which has now been generated by COVID-19. So I think that would be an interesting discussion. Um, Also of importance is this whole issue of the social, the informal sector, sorry, because we we would anticipate that whereas there are social safety nets to treat with persons who are in the formal sector and contributing to social security schemes, this will not necessarily fully extend to those in the informal sector. So I think all of these are areas that we do have to probe to get a better understanding of what is happening. Now, I put together some curves here. These are COVID-19 growth curves. These are actually dated from the 12th of July, which is uh, 10 days ago, I was trying to get the updated information for you, but I couldn't access it. Um, it's information that's being put together on a daily basis by Professor Hambleton at the University of the West Indies through the George Aline Chronic Disease Research Center. And they've been doing some brilliant work in tracking Um, what has been happening with COVID across the 20 CARICOM states. That's the full members as well as the associate members, as you will see on screen. So there are just a couple of things I want to point out here. Um, By way of a general statement, and I heard, um, I think I heard Kiana mention this when I logged in. One is that overall our CARICOM states has been handling the pandemic extremely well. There were good early decisions taken to lockdown, to undertake transmission reduction measures, and the leadership in the region did what they had to do to ensure we were safeguarding our populations. What we did note though, in two states in particular, and you can see it here, particularly in the case of Haiti, and also with respect to Suriname, is that we continue to have increases in numbers um, within those states. We're noticing in both states, that the speed of the increases has been diminishing. As you can see here, you're getting a certain slowing, which is good news. Um, but what is also emerging in this, this was 10 days ago, so today's picture will probably give a little bit more insight, is that we are seeing it, um, features like this if you look at Antigua and Barbuda, and if you look at what's happening here with respect to the Turks and Caicos, uh, the Turks and Caicos Islands down here, um, and this, this is linked principally to the reopening of borders which has been a part of the discussion repatriations and so we are seeing upticks in the numbers now and we need to monitor that so hurricane season 2020 as you know above average and we know Colorado State University is suggesting 20 named storms nine of which will become hurricanes and four major hurricanes and this is resulting in a very complex landscape for us in terms of our operational scenarios Based on what we're seeing, we do have to plan for the catastrophic, and we do realize that because of the health protocols that are required for COVID-19, there is the potential for undermining the principles of the regional response mechanism, which are based on horizontal cooperation. We in the Caribbean, we assist each other. We also know that traditional support may not be forthcoming due to domestic priorities of a number of our partner institutions and therefore we're emphasizing a message of self-sufficiency at the national level, which is going to be bolstered by CARICOM support. So what are the things that we're doing that's different? Well, we've modified our operational plans at the regional as well as national level expanded ICT integration because we recognize there may be constraints to where we may be able to go on the on the ground if there are COVID-19 hotspots, and we don't want to put our responders in danger so we're looking at the use of drones also expanded satellite imagery in 2020 to support us we've been undertaking um, exercises which have been looking at hurricane scenarios but of course taking into consideration the added COVID-19 context We've enhanced our suite of guidelines, including shelter management, and I'll come back to shelters in a minute because we did look at some specific gender-related issues with respect to the shelters. On the governance side, um, we have expanded our regional response mechanism. I'll show you that on the next slide and also touch a little bit on the integrated regional logistics hub, which we formed uh, recently here in Barbados. So on the multi-sectoral coordination front, I mentioned to you our regional response mechanism, which has been in existence since the 1990s. We have modified that governance arrangement for COVID-19 with the establishment of a special cell, which looks at uh, the health aspects of the coordination for COVID-19. And this cell is actually driving all the work that is done through our regional coordination center, um, signified here by the RCC. So we have key agencies here, for example, CARFA, our public health agency, Pan American Health Organization, OECS Commission is also there, as well as UWI. We are also working on the humanitarian logistics supply chain. As you know, many of our countries have had challenges with access to essential medical devices and supplies. And in keeping with the commitment of the heads of government to regional solidarity, there are protocols that have been articulated for consolidated purchases of medical devices and supplies. And sadema has been asked to support on the logistics front and we set up a hub here in Barbados and many of your countries will be receiving in short order medical devices and supplies, which have been procured by or donated by various organizations. And in fact, I just The reason I was late this morning is that we had to facilitate a handover of some items procured by the CDB which will be coming out to many of your states. So what are then some of these realities that we're dealing with? One, limited fiscal space for treating operational readiness since um, in large measure significant diversion of budgets has been undertaken to address COVID-19. We know there are going to be challenges with service support in terms of access timeliness within which we'll be able to respond to you because of the requirements of the protocols, et cetera. But also key functions. We've been looking at this, we talked about shelter, but also relief management, evacuation, search and rescue. All of these are gonna be impacted because they have to adhere, of course, to health protocols. So I wanted to touch very briefly on shelters before I close out, because I know this is of particular interest and has gender considerations. So what we have been seeing on the shelter management side is A requirement for additional shelter facilities in some countries because we are adhering to the physical distancing requirements as outlined by our health authorities. We have had to treat with the improvement of resources for shelters, including requirements for PPE, water requirements, frequency of sanitization for frequently used areas, as well as training for our shelter teams. And the gender components are very upfront in the shelter management manuals that are developed by the coordinating unit um, because we do take into consideration not just gender related issues but we also look at specific child protection issues when we are undertaking arrangements for shelters as well so in terms of way forward just to round off the presentation is just two last slides one is that it has to be underpinned by resilience as we're discussing the multiple hazards and the COVID-19, as well as the hurricane season. I think a critical message for 2020 is about flexibility and adaptability. As I said, there are many unknowns with COVID-19. The hurricane season is upon us. And because this is a scenario that has not played out before, we have to be flexible and adaptable in how we are going to treat with what comes before us. Yes, we have plans. But plans are a guide, and we have to be able to uh, shift and adjust as necessary. Regional solidarity and partnerships, I think, are going to be key. And also, with respect to the diversity of our states, it demands also diverse responses from us, and this is what we're managing at the coordinating unit side. We're also seeing that um, acceleration of some of the features of the changing humanitarian landscape. We're... The importance of regional institutions continues to grow and their opportunities for ICT. I also wanted to touch on this whole issue of vulnerable groups, gender and psychosocial considerations because we are building these very concretely into guidance documents and our approaches from the coordinating unit now. I wanted to mention that in fact um, at the end of June beginning of July our council gave consideration to and has approved a safeguarding policy And the safeguarding policy is designed to ensure that we have protection for beneficiaries who are receiving humanitarian assistance through the SEDEMA system. And this includes statements with respect to um, protection from exploitation, including um, um, forcing sexual favors, for example, to be able to receive humanitarian aid. So these are things that are built into our safeguarding policy. And since I'm speaking to a parliamentary group, I think it's important that this whole message of continuity of government and safety of the leadership, it must remain a top priority in the Caribbean. We do not have extensive human resources and our human resources are one of our best um, features and also um, resources in the region. And we have to safeguard our leadership. And I want to reiterate that point and to encourage um, parliamentary leaders not to take unnecessary risks within the context of COVID-19 in particular. And finally, I want to make the plug for us to see COVID-19 as an opportunity for change. I think this is an, as challenging as the situation it present, that it presents, it also affords us a space to be able to integrate a lot of the critical areas that perhaps we have talked about before including how we put gender-related issues at the forefront of our resilience conversations, and certainly this is an opportunity for doing so. So thanks
1: very much for the opportunity to contribute. It is my pleasure to invite uh, Marcelo Tosi, the Engender Project Manager, United Nations Development Program, and allow me to abuse the privilege of the chair and to express my profound thanks for the work that you really do not only in the region, but here in Sanusha as well.
5: During my presentation, I will try and answer uh, a couple of questions that I was posed by the organizers. The first one is what is engender uh, and how does it seek to integrate gender equality and the wider human rights-based approach uh, within the policy realms of disaster preparedness and climate change adaptation? And the second question being how will this program finally uh, benefit uh, the Caribbean countries that are participating uh, in it. Um, To do so, I will make an exercise of deconstruction of the action proposed by ENGENDER, and I will try and describe the different components of this program, how these are interrelated uh, with one another, and how ENGENDER as a whole uh, seeks to promote change in the region and at national uh, level. Just quickly let me mention them all. Antigua and Barbuda, Belize, Dominica, Granada, Guyana, Jamaica, Saint Lucia, Saint Vincent and then the Grenadines, uh, and uh, finally uh, Suriname. Um, so there is. Uh, let's start describing engender uh, by analyzing the assumption that is at the basis of the program. And the assumption that we use is that the participating countries uh, of engender are all at a different stage uh, in removing barriers to gender equality and in the integration of the gender-based analysis within the policy realms of climate change and recovery preparedness. That said, uh, Engender poses a very um, ambitious, if we want, uh, objective to the countries. And this objective is to ensure that climate change and disaster risk reduction actions are better informed by an analysis of these gender inequalities and that the decisions that are taken are taken with a view to ensure that the inequalities are alleviated rather than exacerbated through uh, the policy action. Uh, This seems certainly quite a big task, especially if we think that the ambition is to uh, support uh, the achievement of this goal in nine uh, countries and territories of the region, right, with the assumption that we just made where uh, where, uh, the the progress uh, of the countries is, is dissimilar. Um, so I would say the first question I would pose is what does it take uh, to a program such Engender uh, to, to try work uh, to reach uh, the goal that we have proposed? Well, the first answer I always give is partnership. And I think um, we can refer to Engender as a collaborative programmatic platform that brings together two donors. So we have Global Affairs Canada and UK DFID. Uh, we have five UNDP offices working on the program. We have our partner and sister agency UN Women uh, working on the program. Uh, there is Sedima uh, on the on the preparedness for recovery, and there is also our uh, sister agency, the World Food Programme, which are working collaboratively hand in hand. I would say with the governments of the nine countries that we mentioned uh, before, and that they are all putting their joint knowledge and expertise together to the service of the people. Uh, of the region. In this regard, at the end, and there's a bottom line, what I would say is that in gender really is an opportunity, is an opportunity for the region to do what? Well. First to analyze, and we have heard about uh, from Kiana in her presentation, the importance uh, of uh, collection and analysis of data, uh, right? And the second uh, is an opportunity uh, to secondly tackle some of the existing structural barriers to gender equality uh, that these countries experience in the policy realms uh, that we are uh, analyzing. That said, you can see in those uh, four bubbles, what are the components that I'm quickly going to mention and that we have seen in the, in the presentation outline, the climate change, adaptation and mitigation, disaster recovery, gender equality, and finally, and maybe the most, uh, the most uh, innovative, uh, if we want uh, a component, is the one on behavioral change uh, that I will quickly touch upon. Let's start with the first one then, climate change. What do we aim at gender? What do we seek to achieve with this component? We seek to improve climate resilience for women and girls and key vulnerable populations and the future generation in the Caribbean. What does this mean? It means that we want to work for the most, uh, uh, the most uh, vulnerable sector of our Caribbean populations, but we want to work with them uh, in a sustainable manner so that also the future generations can benefit uh, from the action of uh, Engender. So I have tried, uh, as I said, to deconstruct Engender and show you four, um, four deliverables that Engender will seek to achieve from here to the end of the action, which is, uh, which is scheduled, scheduled for the year 2023. And I will quickly go through uh, through, through the, four, uh, the four bubbles that you can see in the screen. So the first one uh, is uh, uh, the realization of an in-depth baseline assessment uh, through which we want to analyze the gender and climate change policy and programming in the nine countries. I will not indulge on this any, more, uh, any longer, we have heard the, the excellent presentation from Kian on the importance of collecting and analyzing good data to really understand what uh, the issues at stake are so that we can better address them. Let me just take this opportunity to mention that the baseline is starting uh, in the month of August. It will take uh, approximately four months to be completed, and uh, um, it will be the basis for Engender to uh, build the next, uh, uh, the next bricks of the construction and the them in place. Uh, The second bubble that you can see is the training on gender equality mainstreaming. Again, Kiana mentioned this component in her presentation. I think it was a very, very good exercise where UN Women also uh, managed to deliver the training while dealing uh, with social uh, distancing, actually extreme social distancing. And it was the first experiment, at least that I have participated in, where we were able uh, uh, to, uh, to gather a significant amount of, uh, of officers from the nine uh, countries through an online, uh, through an online uh, training mechanism. The third bubble that you can see is the offer of complementary funding. Uh, very quickly, UNDP has, uh, has launched this activity a couple of months ago. And uh, our objective was to finance proposals that would come from the governments of the nine countries that could uh, address the gaps that these countries experiences in accessing, um, in accessing uh, um, environmental and green uh, finance. Uh, I am happy to say that five of those proposals have been approved. Uh, There has been a strong component of technical assistance from the engender program, and five of those uh, those, uh, um, those, uh, proposals will be implemented. We are now in the phase where we are drafting the implementation plans with the government. Finally, and this is a, this is a big bubble, as you can see in the screen, what Engender will uh, will aim at doing, and this is an activity that we are just starting now, uh, in terms of conceptualization, is to develop and but also implement during the last uh, during the next years of the program, budgeted gender-responsive sectoral action plans and monitoring and evaluation frameworks for priority sectors that would stem from the policies that are in place in every respective countries. In some countries, these relate mainly to uh, NAPs and NAMAs that have been previously approved. Uh, in terms of the second realm, uh, of the second component of Engender, we uh, have uh, mentioned gender inequality. What Engender is trying to seek is to support gender machineries in the countries Uh, to realize a detailed analysis of gender inequalities to understand better how this relates with climate risks and uh, what are the associated costs of these inequalities in the Caribbean. This is a huge effort that UN Women will put in place using methodologies that they have been working uh, elsewhere and that they will adapt uh, to, uh, to the Caribbean context. I will not go through the bubbles in detail. However, I would like to mention that uh, the country-level reviews that will be uh, made uh, uh, by UN Women will then be utilized to find innovative ways to communicate the findings and then will also be used uh, uh, to to provide sensitization but also training on the methodology uh, on the methodology that has been The third component that we have mentioned and that Engender is working on is disaster recovery, namely preparedness for disaster recovery. The idea here, the challenge if we want and what Engender endeavor is to um, enhance gender responsive and inclusive resilient recovery approaches and solutions within the tools that exist in the region or through innovative tools that can foster uh, this gender and uh, and human rights-based approaches within uh, the same tool. So uh, there is a strong collaboration here with SEDIMA, with the World Food Programme, and I would just like to mention three of the tools that Engender is seeking uh, to update and work on. The first one is the Model National Recovery Framework uh, that Sedima has uh, in its stock of tools to support uh, and provide technical assistance uh, to countries. The second one is the audit tool uh, to make sure that this audit also contemplates uh, um, the the policy realm of uh, recovery rather than only humanitarian humanitarian aid. And the third one would be the work around the CRRF or also uh, called the Caribbean um, a resilient recovery facility, so an instrument that the region could use uh, uh, to easily deploy uh, specialized uh, specialized uh, um, uh, specialized knowledge and expertise in case of a disaster to any of, uh, of the countries that may be impacted. The last component uh, I want to talk about for the regular program of gender is that of behavioral change. I would like to refer to what uh, our colleague Angie uh, previously mentioned in her uh, insightful presentation. They have just started this work uh, with UN Women where they are analyzing uh, the behavioral biases existing at the national level. What I would like to focus on uh, here is how this analysis is fundamental, right, to design and, impl- and implement during the next uh, years uh, behavioral change strategies in the how can we advocate so that we can make sure uh, that this behavioral behavioral change really happens, and that finally, um, these changes uh, really affect and impact uh, uh, the the most vulnerable segment of of the population. The final bubble uh, um, also mentioned a component where these strategies will be assessed by the project to actually see uh, how Effective, uh, their implementation uh, was. Let me just indulge one more second on the COVID response. We know that we have all been affected by the pandemic. Uh, through an agreement, a bilateral agreement between the government of Canada and uh, UNDP. Um, uh, the UNDP, uh, the one million, uh, in excess of one million dollars, have been have been reprogrammed of the resources of engender and uh, are being put at the service of three three, uh, service lines within uh, the nine countries. One is to support uh, income generation for those sectors of the population who have been most most impacted by by the crisis. The second one is uh, uh, to support initiatives that are being implemented uh, to tackle gender-based violence that as we were hearing from Tony, in her speech uh, has significantly increased during the pandemic and the third and final line of service uh, is the provision of essential goods and services to those uh, families uh, and households that have lost their ability to access same uh, uh, due to the uh, pandemic again this is an effort that UNDP uh, is implementing uh, with UN Women as well and we have heard a little bit of this also in Kiana's presentation